Good morning. Welcome to all of you. And let me just start by saying a very sincere thank you on behalf of myself and the Smileys, but also the hopes for the pastor's gift, which you've given. I realize that so many of you have other pressing concerns at the moment, and so we appreciate your generosity all the more. It's our privilege to serve here in the church, and we really do appreciate your kindness. Thank you. Just in order to uh, mention a couple of other pieces of information for you, we're meeting again this evening at 6 p.m., looking at uh, part of John chapter 14. I hope that you can join us for that. And then just to let you know that um, next week, both the Smileys and the Hopes are on holiday in the week. Steve will be back for next Sunday. But uh, if you need to contact an elder this week, you could get in touch with Dave Seward. Uh, He'll be here. And then just a little bit of advance notice, hopefully, for you to put in your diary. Our church annual general meeting was scheduled for last, uh, for March. But of course, the week before the AGM, we went into lockdown. So we are now holding that AGM on Thursday, November the 12th. So hopefully you can uh, reserve that in your diary. We will be doing it in two sessions, just like we do on Sunday mornings, so we can keep the distance we need to have. So there will be one from 7 to about 7.45, and then 8.15 until 9. So they shouldn't be more than 45 minutes each. And the agenda for that is on the notice board, if you want to have a look at that uh, afterwards. I think those are all the uh, dates that I need to mention. We've come this morning to worship God, and if we begin by focusing our attention on Him as we will do in our first song, this song reminds us that our God is not a sleeping God. He is alert, He is always active on our behalf, and He will overcome every enemy because He wears the victor's crown.
Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you because you are the God who watches over us. You are the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Our hope is based on the fact that you never doze off, you never switch off, and you never have. Nothing has ever taken you by surprise. Nothing has ever caught you out. We thank you that when we were asleep in the darkness, you were already working to save us. And today we love you because and only because you loved us first. And we're so thankful that you continue to fight for us and to work for our good, even in those times when we're drowsy, when our commitment is weak, 
We thank you that you take our salvation and our perseverance seriously all the time. We praise you for your fierce, determined love. And we ask you to fill us with that same determination as we seek to live for you and honor you. So in this time of worship, will you speak to us through your word? Will you breathe new life into us by your Holy Spirit? Amen. We're going to have a Bible reading now that shows us something of God's fierce commitment to both uphold his own honor and also to save his people. We're going to read from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. John chapter 2. Almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheeps, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all the people from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered this that, this, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken about was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Our next song reminds us that this Jesus is now risen, as he promised, and today he reigns as king forevermore. Thank you. 
At this point, our Sunday school are going to be continuing their worship next door. And we are going to turn to Judges chapter 14. Judges 14, and we'll read all of chapters 14 and 15. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. 
His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman and he liked her. Sometime later when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. And in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. 
Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing corn of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing corn together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So, the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered, we will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakore, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. This is God's Word. And as we read this, the first question we have to ask is, what are we supposed to do with Samson? He is a wild and dangerous man. As the old Pepperami advert used to say, he's a bit of an animal. He is ruled by his urges and his impulses. He's more interested in sex than he is in serving God or saving Israel. And when he does fight Israel's enemies, he's motivated by personal revenge. He's unlikable, he's rude, and he's totally self-centered. What are we supposed to do with him? Are we supposed to look up to him? Are we supposed to imitate him? 
I really wouldn't advise that, not at all. Here's what the writer of Judges wants us to do. He wants us to look beyond Samson to the God who brought Samson on the scene. Samson is not here as a role model for us. He's here to show us how much God cares about his passive, apathetic, lifeless people. That's what Israel is at this point in time. Last week we heard how the Philistines became the latest of a long line of enemies to oppress Israel. And we saw for the first time, Israel did not cry out to the Lord. They didn't have enough life or hope in them even to plead for his help. That's the context where God raises up Samson, confronted with a lifeless people, God shows himself to be fiercely determined. The life and death of Samson shows us just how much God cares. In this situation of lethargy and inertia, Samson comes as God's troublemaker. It's obvious from this passage that he's a troublemaker. But equally, there is absolutely no doubt as we read this passage, Samson is God's troublemaker. Chapter 13 told us how Samson was set apart for God from the womb until the day of his death. And after describing his birth, chapter 13 ended by telling us the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Or it could be translated, the Spirit began to drive him or propel him. So we know this troublemaker of a man is arriving on the scene as God's instrument. And the passage we just read this morning reminds us of that five times. Samson is not here as an example for us to imitate. He's here to show us the lengths God will go to to save a people who are past hoping even for salvation. As chapter 14 opens, Samson is a young man. He has been checking out the girls at Timnah. That's a Philistine town about four miles from Samson's home. He comes back home and he says in verse 2, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. The first words we hear from Samson tell us quite a lot about Samson. First of all, they tell us he has no respect for his parents. He orders his parents around like they're his servants. Second, these verses tell us his criteria for finding the right wife seems to be based purely on looks. Later in the passage, we find out at this point he hasn't yet spoken to the woman. He just saw her and that was enough. And thirdly, these verses show us Samson has no respect for God's law. Israelites were not to intermarry with other nations because that always led them to forsake the Lord and join the idol worship of those nations. But Samson couldn't care less about any of that. He has seen something he wants, he's determined to get it, and when his parents object, he just keeps insisting on his way. In verse 3, his father and mother replied, 
Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. The practice of circumcision was not unique to Israel, but it did have a unique meaning for Israel. They were his people. And the point of calling the Philistines uncircumcised is that they do not have any relation to the Lord. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Literally, she is right in my eyes. I don't care what anybody else thinks. This conversation around the dinner table, it sounds like a young man bossing his parents around. But it is going to have big consequences because it sets off a chain of events that will lead in the end to a major international incident. And in verse 4, the writer of Judges tells us who is behind all this. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. This is the most significant verse in the whole passage. It explains everything else that we see and hear. This insolent, selfish young man is God's troublemaker. Now that doesn't mean Samson gives God any thought. Although as his story progresses, we will see he's not totally ignorant of the Lord and the Lord's purposes. But Samson's awareness of who he is is not the point. The point is, in a situation where the Israelites as a people are lifeless and resigned to being oppressed by the Philistines, the Philistines are ruling over them and they're doing nothing about it. They're not even crying out to the Lord. Into that situation, God sends this one-man wrecking ball to do for Israel what Israel will not and cannot do for herself. That doesn't mean Samson is a commendable person. It doesn't mean he's an example to us. It does mean that our God is prepared to make trouble, if that's what's needed, to free his people from apathy and sin and the slavery that comes with sin. So here's something for you and me to think about. Could it be that in his great love and care for us, God sometimes sends trouble into our situation to break up our comfortable tolerance of sin? and our apathy towards him. A Norwegian preacher called Ole Hallesby encourages us to ask this question. Do I really desire to be set free from the lukewarmness of my heart and my worldly life? Is not my Christian life always lukewarm and half-hearted for the simple reason that deep down in my heart I desire it that way? Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that every trouble in our lives is there because God wants to shake us out of spiritual lukewarmness and provoke a confrontation between us and our sin. 
Of course, there are other explanations for trouble in our lives. But surely there are times when we have to at least consider this explanation. That God may have sent trouble, that he may have kicked up some dust in our lives to bring a confrontation between us and some sin that has begun to rule over us. God cares enough to sometimes send a wrecking ball even into our apathy and lethargy. He is that committed to us. He is that determined. He will do what it takes to get us serious about our commitment to him. Back in Israel, Samson's parents dutifully go to Timnah with him to set up this marriage that he has demanded. Although it seems they don't exactly walk the four miles together as a happy family, Samson is too restless and energetic to take a stately stroll with his parents. He bounds on ahead, he gets attacked by a lion, and he's given supernatural strength to tear the lion apart with his bare hands. Clearly, this was not something Samson routinely did. Verse 6 says, he was able to do it because the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And this incident is, in part, a sign to Samson of what God is capable of doing through him. But this dead lion is also going to give rise to a whole load of trouble later on. Because on another visit to Timnah, Samson goes to have a look at the lion's carcass. And he finds some bees making honey in it. Now the thought of reaching into a dead animal, scooping out honey and then eating it, is enough to turn my stomach. Probably yours too. And maybe Samson didn't have the same concerns about hygiene that you and I do, but this should have been repulsive to Samson for another reason. Why? Because he's a Nazarite. And we saw last week, one of the three Nazarite commitments was to avoid any contact with dead bodies. The other two were to avoid any produce from the vine, no wine, grapes, or raisins, and no razor was to touch his head. But although Samson knows he's a Nazarite, he'll talk about it in chapter 16, he has no hesitation digging around in this dead lion to get the honey he wants. Nor does he have any qualms about getting drunk. Verse 10 says, Ahead of the wedding, Samson held a feast in Timnah. And commentators tell us the word refers to a seven-day drinking party. The Philistines choose 30 men to be his companions at the party. Now, it's not clear whether this was a Philistine custom or if they felt sorry for Samson because he has no mates of his own to come to the party, or if they're actually a bit suspicious of him and these men are really there to keep him from causing trouble. But whatever the explanation is, the fact is Samson is going to cause trouble. He makes a bet with his new friends that they can't solve his riddle. Out of the eater 
something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. And of course, they can't solve that riddle. It's impossible to solve without knowing the unique details about the lion Samson killed. So in desperation, the Philistines make Samson's new wife an offer she can't refuse in verse 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? We might wonder as we read this, if this is how the Philistines treat each other, how have they been treating the Israelites? In any case, Samson's wife chooses loyalty to her family rather than loyalty to her new husband. She coaxes the answer out of Samson, and verse 18 says, Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Samson seems to think his wife has given these men more than just the answer to a riddle. Accusing them of plowing with his heifer is a pretty crude way of referring to his wife, accusing her of being sexually unfaithful. Then Samson is given another burst of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and he goes to Ashkelon. Ashkelon is a major Philistine city 25 miles from Timnah. There he kills 30 Philistines to get the clothes he needs to pay his bet. But by doing that in Ashkelon, in such a major Philistine center, he has now announced himself to all the Philistines. And that will lead to what happens next in chapter 15, where Samson seems to be the only angry man in Israel. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. I'm assuming that a young goat was the equivalent of a box of chocolates or a bouquet of flowers. Samson arrives with this present, this goat, and he says, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. But no one is going to tell Samson how to find a wife. He wanted her, then he didn't want her, and now he does again, and he cannot stand being being denied what he wants. So he catches 300 foxes. And we're not told there's anything supernatural about that. Maybe there was. Or maybe he just knew people who worked in pest control. In any case, it's harvest time, and once Samson has the foxes, however he got them, he totally incinerates the Philistines' harvest and their vineyards and olive groves. 
He does that by tying flaming torches to the fox's tails and then letting them loose in the cornfields. That is economically devastating. But as we've seen them do before at Samson's wedding, when he causes trouble for the Philistines, they turn on their own people. Chapter 15, verse 6. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. We have no other details of this slaughter. All we know is it was big. And when it was over, Samson goes to live in this cave like a wild man of the woods. But... The cave is in Judah. And now Samson is public enemy number one as far as the Philistines are concerned. They decide they can't ignore him any longer. And that means we now have an international incident on our hands. The Philistines come en masse into Israelite territory. Verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. This is an army ready for war. And the lifeless, apathetic Israelites go into a tiz. Verse 10. The people of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. Do you see how pathetic this is? The Philistines have enslaved the Israelites. They are Israel's oppressors. But when God sends a deliverer to Israel, 3,000 Israelites turn out not to follow Samson into battle against the Philistines, but to take Samson prisoner and hand him over to the Philistines. Samson is the only hope they've got to be free of their oppressors. But they just want to placate the Philistines and get rid of Samson so things stay the way they are. They would rather continue in slavery than cause any trouble. And the sadness of this situation becomes even clearer when we notice these are men from Judah. Why is that significant? Because of what we read in the opening verses of this book. Chapter 1, verse 1 said this, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up, 
I have given the land into their hands. Israel had a mission from God to take the land of Canaan. They were to bring God's judgment on the evil of Canaan. And by doing so, they would also be claiming their inheritance from God. The tribe of Judah was to lead God's people into battle. And to begin with, they did. Chapter 1 records the initial victories of Judah. But what a sad contrast we have here. These men of Judah want to avoid conflict at all costs. Even to the point where they will betray their best warrior to keep peace with the Philistines. These people have forgotten their mission. They've lost their desire to claim their inheritance. All they want is to keep the status quo. Don't rock the boat. The status quo might be a lot less than it could be. It might even be fairly miserable. But it feels safe. It's become normal. And they're content with that. Freedom from oppression, service to God, those things aren't even on their radar anymore. And that is a big, big problem. Given the situation, it is pathetic that Samson seems to be the only angry man in Israel. And if you and I come back to think about how this might apply to us, we need to think all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The opening chapters of the book of Genesis describe how after Satan in the form of a serpent has tempted the man and woman into sin, God says this to the snake, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That is not a promise that women are going to hate snakes. It's saying there will be hostility between Satan and humanity. Satan is the oppressor and enslaver of men and women. And it is right and appropriate when men and women hate him and all his work. Something is badly wrong when that enmity is missing. Now, of course, we might look at this passage in Judges and think, well, the Philistines aren't Satan. How is this connected? Why should there be hostility between Israel and the Philistines? Well, the answer is the Philistines are enemies of God's people. And that makes them offspring of the serpent. By oppressing God's people, the Philistines are siding with Satan the ultimate oppressor of God's people. The Israelites should not be content to be enslaved and oppressed by this enemy. These uncircumcised Philistines who worship false gods and lead Israel into sin. And in our own situation, you and I should be hostile to anything that smacks of Satan's work. We should not be content when God's word is disregarded and when sin rules. 
we should be angry about it. Especially so in our own lives, in our own hearts. Something is radically wrong if you and I would rather keep the peace with sin than go to war against sin. Now granted, here in Judges, there's no evidence Samson was angry about the things we've just mentioned. His enmity with the Philistines was about personal vengeance. So he is not a great example for us. But when God's ultimate deliverer came, he did show the kind of good anger and hostility we've just been talking about. We read earlier from John chapter 2, which tells us when Jesus Christ saw the temple in Jerusalem turned into a market, a money-making racket, where true worship of God had been sidelined, when Jesus saw that, he didn't sigh meekly to himself and then leave it alone. The Bible tells us he made himself a whip and then he waded right in, kicking over tables and driving people out. Jesus was angry and hostile when he saw God's people oppressed under empty religion and hypocrisy. But in his day, Jesus too turned out to be the only angry man in Israel. I say that because when Jesus started to shake things up, the leaders of Israel decided to betray him rather than allow him to disturb the status quo. A little further on in John's Gospel, John tells us these leaders of Israel said this about Jesus. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The Romans were in charge at that time. Life under the Romans was not great. But these leaders of Israel have got used to it. And in their desire to keep things the way they are, they decided to hand Jesus over to the Romans. Just like their ancestors handed Samson over to the Philistines. They both thought they were getting rid of a troublemaker. But in both cases, God had other plans. In Samson's case, when the Israelites tied him up and the Philistines charged towards him, we're told the Spirit of the Lord again came powerfully upon him. And he won a great victory over the Philistines. With supernatural power, he used a donkey's jawbone to kill a thousand of them. That was not what the Israelites or the Philistines had expected. And in Jesus' case, when he went to the cross, betrayed by his own people, treated unjustly by the Romans, on the cross, Jesus won the supreme victory over sin and death and hell. Thank God he is that determined to save lost apathetic, lifeless people. Thank God that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And doesn't God's willingness to tackle and defeat sin encourage us to be angry and hostile to sin and go to war against it in our own hearts? The New Testament book of Hebrews says, when I am happy to keep the peace with sin, I am crucifying the Son of God all over again. I'm like those Jewish leaders who prefer that Jesus would die rather than have their situation shaken up. I'm like the men of Judah in Samson's day who chose to hand him over to the Philistines rather than join him and take on the Philistines. So let's ask, is there a sin you have become comfortable with? Maybe you've fallen into the habit of deceiving people. Letting people around you think you're somebody different from who you really are. You might not call it lying, but it is really. Are you misleading people around you? Or do you abuse people around you in the harsh, demeaning way you speak to them? in the words you use to them or even behind their backs when you talk about them? Has that become just normal for you? Or do you have an addiction you've just decided to live with? Maybe an addiction to spending. Or if not actually spending, then coveting new stuff. Or is there an addiction to alcohol or eating? If you or I have become comfortable with any sin, it's time to stop being comfortable with it. And the end of our passage shows us the way forward. In his day, Samson was God's troublemaker. He seemed to be the only one in Israel with any enmity to Israel's enemies. And in a moment of desperation, he is also willing to cry for help. After his monumental slaughter of the Philistines with the donkey's jawbone, after that, Samson is physically spent. And verse 18 says, Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Last week we saw for the first time in the book, the Israelites failed to cry out to the Lord. Their hope was gone. And we've seen this week, even their desire to be delivered has gone. Israel does not cry out to the Lord. But here Samson, in his desperation, does cry out. And as the Lord loves to do, as he loves to do, he comes in mercy and he revives Samson. And this is the way forward for us. 
When we find we've become comfortable in our apathy and our spiritual lukewarmness, our half-heartedness, when we have to admit that honestly we'd rather make peace with sin than go to war against it, when we're weak and faint in our Christian commitment, here is our way forward. We cry out to the Lord who loves to revive his people. He loves to renew our strength. So we can move forward with a new hostility to sin, a new love for obedience. Thank God he is never half-hearted. He is determined to save his people. And when we cry out to him, he will help us. Let's speak to him together now. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you, sometimes we just don't care about the things we should care about. Sometimes we don't want freedom all that much. Instead of feeling hostile to Satan and sin, we're comfortable shuffling along in compromise and defeat. So today, we cry out to you. Help us to share your hostility to the sin that damages us and enslaves us. Revive us in our love for you and your word. Renew our strength to fight the battles we need to fight. And we thank you for loving us enough to shake us out of our apathy. We thank you that Jesus cared enough to go to the cross and defeat our greatest enemy. Thank you that by his death and resurrection, Jesus broke the power of him who holds the power of death. Thank you that in Christ, we can share in that victory over Satan and sin. We look to you for all we need today and in the week ahead of us. Amen. Our final song is also a prayer. It's a response to God's word. O great God of highest heaven.
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.